Our scripture lesson comes from Luke chapter 2. I invite you to share in God's good word uh, with me. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This Advent, this time that we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ, we are looking at Christmas through the eyes of Mary. Uh, We're in a sermon series by our flagship church, Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, uh, by Reverend Adam Hamilton, uh, his book, Not a Silent Night. And so our thanks to um, Reverend Adam Hamilton and sharing it with us. And so we were looking last week, we looked at the end of Mary's life. Um, She would have been roughly about 48 A.D. uh, at that time. And so she would have been about 60 to 64 years of age. And so today uh, we take the next step. Uh, Last week we looked at hope. This week we look at love and the love poured out for us at the cross. And so we move back in time about 15 years to 33 A.D. Um, So Mary at this time would have been uh, probably in her mid-40s. Um, somewhere in the 40s. So if you have your sermon notes and take those out, you can follow along with us. Uh, that's your first blank there. Mary would have been in her mid 40s. Now, that's special to me, of course, because I'm in my 40s. And I think um, what that would be like. I have two sons. And if I were to lose one of them, um, that would be devastating. Um, a number of years ago, uh, The Passion of the Christ came out, that film. And um, I went to go see that. Uh, we, we did that as a church. Some of you all were there with me. And um, you know, I was trying to get my pastor face on and make sure that, you know, I didn't cry in front of the whole church because I knew it was going to be very difficult. And um, and I was doing really, really well until they took sort of these artistic licenses that I wasn't prepared for. I kind of knew the stories from the Bible and I was prepared to kind of, you know, power through those. But then they did some interesting things that aren't in the Bible. They just took some artistic license. And it really touched me because I think so often uh, we know that Jesus is God. And, and we can almost make him sort of like a superhero or a super figure. Um, I think the Passion of the Christ did a great job of helping us remember the humanity of Jesus as well. And the relationships that would have been deep and meaningful for him uh, with his mom and his dad and his family and his friends. You see, in the celebration that God has come to earth in Christmas, we can mistakenly forget the humanity of Jesus. That he knows everything about you and me because he lived like you and me, full of hurt and pain and sickness and in health and life and in death and now life again. Going into the last day of his life, the Sanhedrin had arrested Jesus in the middle of the night after he had celebrated the Passover Seder with his friends that they would have done every year. And Jesus had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and Judas Iscariot, the traitor among his disciples, led the guard there to arrest him. That night he was tried and convicted of blasphemy by the religious leaders. And early the next morning, Friday, Good Friday for us, he was taken by the guard to the Roman governor and charged with leading an insurrection against Rome, a crime punishable by death, usually death on a cross. The Gospels don't tell us where Mary was that night, but we know that she was in Jerusalem. If Jesus was your son and you learned that he had been arrested, where would you be? You'd be with him. Mary certainly would have been present when Jesus was tried before the Roman governor. Pontius Pilate about six o'clock in the morning. Six o'clock in the morning. That's your next blank there. 
Mary would have watched in agony as she saw her son falsely tried and condemned. Pilate asked the crowd that early morning outside his palace, what would you have me do with this man? And as I imagine, it must have taken Mary's breath away when she heard the crowd shout, crucify him. And never, how could she have seen that coming? So Pilate asked, well, why? What has he done? And someone in the crowd answered, he leads a rebellion against Rome. He claims to be a king usurping your authority and Caesar's. Crucify him. But before sending Jesus to be crucified, Pontius Pilate commanded that the Roman special attendants would torture him. And so they stripped her son and they wrapped a crown of thorns and they placed it on his brow and they beat him within an inch of his life. Forty lashes minus one because they had found out that if you beat a man 40 lashes, he would die. And so they backed it up one lash so that Jesus would be as close to death yet live. And they spit upon him and they struck him all in an effort to dehumanize him and break him. And they mockingly bowed before him and they said, oh, hail king of the Jews. Two hours later, by eight o'clock that morning, they had led him back to Pontius Pilate. And as Mother Mary would watch in horror as her son stood there, humiliated, a bloody mess. Pontius Pilate presented him to the people. And once more, the crowd shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate then ordered the guards to take Jesus outside the city walls to a hill called Golgotha, where he would be nailed to a cross, hung between two criminals and left to die a slow, painful death. Now, part of the power of Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, was his portrayal of Mary on the day that Jesus died. She was played by a Romanian actress named Maya Morgenstern. She played the part of Mary. And part of what made the film so compelling was seeing the suffering and death of Jesus through the eyes of his mother. On his way to the cross, she would watch him and follow him to Calvary. It makes a difference looking at what Jesus goes through, through his parents' eyes, through Mary's eyes. The Gospel of John, the good news according to John tells us that Mary stood near the cross of Jesus. She was there when few others were watching and weeping as they drove spikes into his hands and his feet. And finally, Jesus' cross was lifted to the air. And he hung there next to two common criminals. Recently, we've discovered that the crosses would have been fairly low as a way to warn the people of what the Roman occupiers could do to you. And so Jesus would have been right there close enough for Mary to touch him and talk to him. And so she stood there for hour after hour after hour from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, six hours watching helplessly. And it would be the longest day of her life. You can imagine the pain that she was feeling, the sorrow and the overwhelming grief on this terrible day. Now, I'm not a mom. And I, don't, I, can't, I can't imagine um, what that would be like for her. So all I could do is to think about my own life and my own boys and sort of, of what that's like. And so I started thinking about our youngest, Noah. He's kind of a daredevil. He's 15 and a half now. He's going to be driving in April. Pray for us. Pray for us. And so as I think about my Noah, I like to think of him like this. He's about three to four there. 
happy, just full of life. And this is how I think of him. And, and when he's in our home, he comes home from a long day at high school and he's a sophomore now at North. And I grab the back of his head and, you know, I kind of pet him and I love on him. Sometimes he crawls up in my lap. He's all elbows and knees these days. But um, at one time he was kind of snuggly. And when I stroke his head, I always look for a little scar that runs right, right down his head. Because when in the early days we had this little, you know, shopping center between Dollar General and Renaissance Center. And he used to love to run up and down the aisle all the way up. And he'd have little friends follow him up and down, up and down, up and down. And one day they were running as fast as they could run. And his friend and he got tangled up and he fell forward and caught the edge of the door frame and just cut his head straight open. Chantel and I got him together and went to the hospital, the ER, and held him while he cried and they numbed it. And then they had these staples and could feel his little head. You know, I mean, it was like, wow, this is happening to my son. Let's always look for that little place where his hair just doesn't grow back in anymore. And I pet him there. And then I reach around and I feel for this scar that's on his face over here where he jumped off his brother's second story bed on their bunk beds with a pencil in his mouth. And how Chantel called me in a panic. There's blood everywhere. And he's fine. Just a couple more stitches here. And here. Or when we got a call from some good friends of ours across town that their son had accidentally hit him in the face with a pipe as they were playing. And so we had stitches here and here and here. You see, I know that about him because he's mine. And those are beautiful to me. And I think back about his life and the fun times we have and the hard times he's had. And I wonder what Mary was thinking about during those hours that she waited when her son would have scars here and here and one here and a crown of thorns there. As she tried to make sense of what was happening to her son, I believe she may have remembered Christmas and the things that had happened over her son's life. She remembered maybe that the Magi who had brought Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, myrrh, what a strange gift to give to a child. It was used to make oil that anointed holy things. Holy things. It was, that's what it was used for. Things dedicated to God. Would her son be dedicated to God? Was he holy already? She knew that he was. It was used for kings for their scented oils. And it was also used and mixed with wine to deaden the pain for those about to be crucified. In fact, Jesus had just been offered such wine before his crucifixion. Myrrh was also used to embalm the dead. Was the Magi's gift a sign, she wondered, that God knew her son's fate? Was his painful death somehow part of God's plan? So as she stood there for six hours, did she think about Joseph's words while she was pregnant? That he had a dream. Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. Mary's pregnancy is spirit conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant. She will bring a son to birth. And when she does, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. God saves. God saves because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, God saves. 
How many times over the years had Mary pondered the meaning of that name? I wondered if she tried to put it together, what was happening before her and how that would come to be. How would he save his people from their sins? What did it mean? And as Mary stood at the foot of the cross, was she thinking of how the shepherds came running into that cavernous place where she'd given birth to the animals? Where the shepherds had come and talked of the angel that says, Do not be afraid, for Sam bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. Jesus. Who is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. At the time, Mary had pondered these things in her heart. Now surely she would remember the angel's words and wonder, how can this bloody cross, how can this day be? How can my son be the prince of peace and die this way? On that terrible day, Mary might have been contemplating the words spoken by an old man named Simeon that we read earlier tonight. When she took her baby to the temple for the first time, Simeon held Jesus in his arms and then spoke these words that she had often tried to forget from Luke 2, 34 to 35. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now as Jesus hung on a cross, Did Mary finally understand what Simeon meant? Her soul was being pierced by the sword of grief. The details of Christmas Day have come to us for the same reasons that Mary would have been remembered, would have remembered them at the cross, because they're important. They're important, vitally important. The, the myrrh and the angels and the wise men the shepherds, the hosts of heaven. For Mary, the hideous cross only made sense in light of the events surrounding Christmas. She had to think over her sons all of his life. About the 33 years before when Simeon had said to Mary that her soul too would be pierced. His words meant that somehow God had known Jesus would be crucified and had plans to use Jesus' suffering for the redemption of the world, that he would save his people from their sins. It explained Joseph's dream and their son's name that means God saves. The key to making sense of her son's suffering and death lay in the words spoken about him before his birth and just after his birth. You see, Christmas and Easter are a package deal. They go together. So too, Christmas and Calvary. There's no Christmas without a cross. Now, our family for years now has had a Christmas ornament. Um, it's not really an ornament. It's a spike. Um, and it says, uh, forgive them. It reminds us that Jesus was hung on a tree for our salvation. Uh, most of the people that walk into our home will never see it. We put it sort of back in the middle of the tree. But we know it's there. It reminds us of why we celebrate Christmas. Unto us is born a Savior. Not just a cute baby, but really a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. And it's the same reason we celebrate Christmas with these red poinsettias. It reminds us of the blood that flowed and the sacrifice that was made that day on Calvary. And we invite you to remember that. That's one of your action points this week. That as you go through this Christmas season, as you see the poinsettias, you would remember how much God loves you and his sacrifice for you. 
But how does this all play out? How, what was happening? How does a cross save us? How does a cross save the world? Here we have Jesus, a righteous man, an itinerant preacher, teacher. And he's clashing with the religious authorities of his day. And the people who managed to convince the Romans, they, they torture him and kill him. It's a tragic story. But there's something more happening here. And we have to get this right, friends. Jesus did not die accidentally. Jesus was not a victim. He chose the cross. He chose to die. A victor, not a victim. He chose to die for you and for me and for the world, for everyone you have ever known and for everyone you will ever know. It was his choice. He chose the cross. And that's good news. Jesus knew in advance what would happen, and he turned his face towards Jerusalem. That's what we learn in Luke 9, 51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He chose it. He understood that his death would be used by God to save humanity from our sin. His life wasn't taken from him. He laid it down. It was the fulfillment of a plan. It was an act of salvation for the world, the ultimate act of deliverance. The prophet Isaiah had described this kind of suffering centuries before in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, as one from whom others hid their faces. He was despised and held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. These are the words of Isaiah years and years and years and years before. Now, some people believe that Isaiah was describing Israel in her exile, suffered for the sins of the people who had gone before. And certainly that's true. But we now today understand that Isaiah's words also are good news for us that pointed toward the suffering and death of Jesus, the Christ. So we come to the meaning of the cross. Something that theologians call the atonement. And I'll just admit to you as your pastor that the, the actual how Jesus' death brings about forgiveness for all the world, for all time, for all people. Well, it's beyond me. Let's just put it that way. It's beyond my grasp. There's no way for me to articulate that perfectly to you exactly how that happens. But that it does happen, I'm sure. The imagery of one person suffering vicariously for another was much clearer to first century people. We would remember that routinely they would go to their altar, which is uh, what this represents, and they would lay their animals here and they would gut them and sacrifice them and burn them up. And somehow, some way, that was supposed to make them right with their God or gods, if you were Greek or Romans. They would sacrifice animals. This was a regular occurrence. It happened all the time. And people understood that the blood of one was uh, an atonement for the blood of another. Jews sacrificed animals all the time as a thanksgiving to God, but also to make peace with God, to make amends or to atone for their sin in ways that are completely foreign to us. By bringing an animal as a guilt or sin offering, the sins of the individual were symbolically placed upon the animal. God then, by commanding his people to offer these sacrifices, was providing a way, a mechanism for them to confess, to atone for their sin and to receive forgiveness and grace. You did that, then you have to make this sacrifice. If you make that sacrifice, then you're made right with God. That's how it worked. So in that first century world, both Jewish and Gentile followers of Christ could look at the cross and they could understand that concept. That God's son was the gift, the gift offered for all time, the sacrifice made. 
that Jesus, God himself, took upon himself the sins of countless generations of people. And he absorbed the sting of sin and the pain of sin and the alienation of sin and rendered it powerless to keep humanity from God. The message of any guilt or sin offering is the first that sin has been committed and guilty, the guilt rightly um, aroused. We are human beings, friends, every one of us, and we are all broken. We're prone to do the wrong things. As Isaiah said, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. We need a Savior. We need a Messiah. We need Christ, the Lord. So the fact that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf tells us that God longs to forgive us, to be in relationship with us, with you, with me. Christ willingly bears our sins. Adam Hamilton writes, some people are prone to feel a great deal of guilt in life. I've met some of you. They feel guilty all the time. They were raised um, to feel guilty. And, and so, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me, and it's also heartbreaking to me. People want to know, well, can we do this? Can we do that? Can I wear this? Can I wear that? You know, what, what's okay? People look at them the wrong way and they feel guilty. But, you know, if you're among that group, let me remind you that you're free, friends. If you have received the gift of salvation on the cross, you're free. You don't have to feel guilty. It doesn't do you any good to feel guilty unless it actually turns you to Christ. The cross is God's work to set you free and make you right with him. Christ has already atoned for your sins thousands of years ago. On the other hand, I meet some people, they don't feel guilty at all. I had one guy tell me, he says, Mark, do what you like. You can always say I'm sorry. Just horrible. And some people are like that. They don't want to talk about sin. And, you know, if you're part of that group or you know that, then, then we have to understand what sin really is. The word most often used for sin in the New Testament is hamartia. Hamartia, it's a Greek word, which means to miss the mark. It was an old archery term. And the thing is, friends, we all miss the mark, every one of us, all the time. Any, anybody play golf in here? Anybody ever shoot an 18? That's a perfect game in golf. Don't think you're going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do it. We just got to get past that. We're all fall short of perfection. And to sin is to miss that ideal or right way. And that's true for all of us. There's none of us without sin. Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn has this quote. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. And he says this, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We all have those choices of good and evil, obedience and not obedience before the Lord. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Yes, the cross that Mary stood before was a sign, a dramatic act of God in which he was holding a mirror up to humanity as if to say, there's something dreadfully wrong here. You need to be saved. But the message did not end there. No, not at all. God comes to us and Jesus says, I want to save you. And my son has been has borne your sin upon the cross that you might be set free. And it has been done. And so we have this amazing, amazing gift. 
of salvation offered to us at an incredible price, but free to us. And, and, the, and the irony is, of course, it costs you nothing and everything at the same time to follow Christ. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. And so this love of God at the cross is meant to lead us to accept a love and mercy that we don't deserve and cannot afford. Hear that again. It's meant to lead us to accept the love and mercy that we don't deserve, none of us, and none of us can afford. This child Jesus, born to be the Savior of the world. As Mary stood by the cross, she listened, and there were two common criminals crucified with Jesus, one on each side of his cross. And one of them cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And do you remember how Jesus answered her? Answered um, the, the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, some of the people standing at the foot of the cross continued to hurl insults at Jesus, even at this time, as he was near death. And this is what he prayed. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. And the centurion had never heard anything like this in his life. He said, truly, this is God's son. This is the son of God. Will you pray with me? Come, Lord Jesus. We give thanks for the costly gift of your life. Given freely for our sins. By your spirit, guide us as we seek ways to prepare for your coming at Christmas. As we try to live out our calling in the midst of the glitter and confusion of the Christmas season. Help us to keep the cross at the center of our vision. In your name we pray. Amen.